Hello and welcome to another episode of A Green New Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Green, joined, as always, by my twin brother, Connor Green. Connor, say hi to everybody. You know, I'm really thinking we need to get a, a guest on this show because I feel like that intro is getting a little stale. I I I think I've only done it like two or three times. Um, and what podcast it, is this? Is this like the sixth? This fifth? Is the fifth episode, man. Fifth episode. We need to start getting them guests. That's how. I, that's how. That's how podcasts go big. You know, Con. I feel like this is something you usually complain about off air and not like starting this podcast. Like, damn, bro, we're boring already. Like, we we need a new fresh voice. <laughs> yeah. No. I I mean I I have fun. We have fun here. We have fun, and we have we have good discussions. But yes, yes. A, a, another guest, another uh, voice to, to to talk with would be would be amazing. But you know, last week we had a, a very uh, lively discussion about vaccine passports and the state of um, COVID in the United States. We postulated whether or not there would be a fourth surge. Um, so just to, that's kind of a transition in how we're going to start. We're going to talk about the big news this week about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause. But before that, um, I don't know if you've been monitoring the cases uh, this week in the U.S., the caseload con, but it seems like it's still remaining around the same number, about 70,000 to 80,000 cases a day. It hasn't really gone up. It looks like it's kind of still on that plateau, and you know, hopefully, we can go down from there. But it hasn't it had that. This week has not shown that bump, and and I think right now we are in that window too, where a lot of people traveled for Easter, right? Um, and those cases would start showing up. But it seems hopefully that that this plateau is kind of indicated indicative of the fact that um, people are getting vaccinated. People are still taking distancing and, and mask wearing seriously, and that we have a, a level of immunity um, where hopefully we, these cases can start really going down as more and more people get vaccinated. So um, good news um, about as of today, 50 percent of all U.S. adults in America uh, have at least their first shot. So round of applause, everybody. Um, but with that update. We need to talk about the big news of the week. Was it on Tuesday, I believe? It was like 6, 7 a.m. I'm sitting in my car and I'm getting ready to go to work. And I just am just like shocked to see uh, the New York Times notification that pops up on my phone that says Johnson & Johnson, uh, the CDC and FDA recommend a pause of the vaccine, the one-shot vaccine that had been administered to 7 million people to that date. Um, it was surprising. Um, and at that point, there had been no indication of any kind of, um, you know, hugely adverse events. And as we've we've known, there were six connections of, of blood clotting to... So they um, haven't been officially... They connected. haven't been confirmed. They have not established no. a causal relationship between no. the two, but they have been reported shortly after receiving the vaccine. I think it's a pretty rare form of blood clot that I think is the same form that was found with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes. So... Um... That was surprising, and then they um, convened, I think, on 
it was either Wednesday or Thursday to try to the FDA and the CDC to try to make a determination. And then they announced that they would still take even more time and they will now wait until Friday to hopefully give us an indication of whether they're going to stop or start um, the J&J vaccinations again. So, Khan, this kind of was uh, pretty surprising news. I, I wanted to get your opinion on on if this was a smart, sound move in your mind. So I think, first of all, it should be noted that this it's a CDC and the FDA recommended the pause of the distribution of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. They didn't just you know, ban states from using it, right? They, they set out a recommendation, basically kind of like a warning saying, we, hey, we have, you know, a couple of concerning developments and states can then have the discretion of whether or not to roll out the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Our state of North Carolina decided to pause the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I think most states have, I don't know. I think all of them. But I yeah. mean, you also like, you're missing a big point there. Like, a lot of the way that J&J was administered was through was mass from the federal government, but yes, mass yes, vaccination yes. sites within those states. Um, but like theoretically, if but, but, but theoretically, and if pharmacies still and had Johnson and Johnson CVS vaccines, and Walgreens, yes. which were under the federal program, were also but if, but, the, but the ones that were being set up through the state programs, if they already had the Johnson and Johnson vaccines, they did not have to cancel them, right? Like they could right. continue to give out those shots. So it wasn't a complete, you know, shutdown of the distribution of the vaccine. And, you know, I honestly think, and this is just me, and I know everyone has a different take about this, but, you know, I think this kind of just shows the system is working, that they are, you know, this is a, this, these vaccines were developed in really, you know, break, at a break, breakneck pace <laughs> and really in a historic fashion, right? I mean, we've never had a vaccine developed in like under a year for a major illness. Now, some of that is because they were already working on coronavirus related vaccines for a long time. And the, the, the particular vaccine, the mRNA vaccines, which is used by John, or not Johnson Johnson, Pfizer and Moderna, they have also been in the work for a long time. So a lot, some of this was just like the timing of this and they've been working on similar vaccines. So it didn't take as long. Some of it was, you know, the government putting up a lot of money to shield these companies from potential financial losses um, through Operation Warp Speed. And other governments did this across the world. But again, this vaccine was developed really quickly. So, I mean, I think this just shows that there is a robust system in place that if something concerning pops up, because you can't guarantee nothing concerning is going to pop up, that they're going to tell you about it and that they're going to take action. And they're going to let people know and they're not going to cover it up. And I think this was a good move from Johnson & Johnson, or not Johnson & Johnson, obviously, but the FDA <laughs> and the CDC, because... Again, the United States, we're very fortunate that we have three major vaccines with a very high number of those doses. Like we, the vaccine distribution effort was not significantly hampered by this pause, right? Like we still had Pfizer and Moderna going out. And those were the two major vaccines at this point in time anyway. And part of that was because of a distribution um, mishap that Johnson & Johnson had with one of its factories that was producing some of the ingredients they, they, they messed up. They kind of, I think they outsourced that to like a different company. So, you know, there, there was already some hiccups, but you're going to expect these hiccups, right? We saw this with the AstraZeneca shot. You know, you're going to expect some of these hiccups. Again, no causal, no causal relationship has been established between the blood clots and Johnson and Johnson. But I think it's good to err on the side of caution. It shows people that people are monitoring this, that people aren't covering this up, that we are taking this seriously. And again, I would imagine that we're going to get these the Johnson & Johnson vaccine back. I think at worst, maybe they'll kind of tailor it and saying, if you're over the age of 50, you can take this. I think they did something similar with the AstraZeneca vaccine in the United Kingdom. 
because all the cases, the six cases that we're talking about, were in women between the ages of 18 and 48. So maybe they say something like, if you're over 50 and you haven't had any you know, history of allergic reactions to vaccines, you can take the shot. So that would narrow who can take it. But again, it just shows the system is working. I think, it, you know, and, and for me, this actually increased my confidence in the vaccine program. I know not everybody, obviously, is going to share that view. And there are going to be a lot of anti-vaxxers who are going to jump on this and, and really kind of, I think, ride it for all it's worth and try to increase vaccine hesitancy, which was already a problem in the United States. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, the alternative to this is you just have these news reports happen and then the government do nothing about it. And to me, that would, I think, potentially have an equally high risk of vaccine hesitancy. And then it's, I think it's also good to actually investigate these potential correlations between these rare blood clots and the vaccine. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I, I take your views, um, you know, with a lot of respect. But I, I have a, a different view of this. Um, and we, we've, we've talked about this, but, you know, it was six cases out of 7 million reported. I mean, there could be more. I mean, these could not be linked at all. It could be a coincidence. Um, but I think hitting the pause button, and that's effectively what happened when the CDC and FDA recommended, you know, pausing the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It was hitting a nationwide pause button on administering them, even though, as you said, that there was some optionality to it somewhat. Some flexibility. Of, for the some states. flexibility, even though not really, because a lot of the ways it was administered was through federal vaccination clinics. I don't know. I think, um, you know, that's a very small number. Obviously, all deaths matter, and that's very tragic if it was related. But the risk of dying from COVID and getting COVID in this, like, two-week window, you know, or however long it's going to be before they completely stop it or they review it and they, you know, readminister it. I, I, I think it just, it, it, the, the risk is a lot worse than whatever kind of thing that J&J has done, right? Whatever kind of pause you have on J&J. One in 585 Americans have died from the coronavirus, and that's growing. And the risk of getting COVID is, is, is still very high. And it should also be noted, and I don't know if you were going to get to this, but that people who had severe COVID and they were hospitalized for COVID, they had a much higher rate of these blood clots as well and similar blood clots in other parts of their bodies. So, right. And in COVID, yeah. the risk of blood clots are a lot higher. In birth control pills, in certain birth control pills, the risk of blood clots is like one in every three. But I think the difference with the birth control pills is is that risk is largely known and it's been studied very it, uh, But it really it has not been studied like, as no, no, much. No, hold up, hold up. It has been very neglected. Women's birth control and, and, and just like all like women's health reproductive rights have been very understudied. Like, I, I agree. I, I, yeah, I no, that's definitely true. But they, it, we've it had birth control for, for over half a century. Birth control because it's not really a priority for these white male legislators. Let's just let's just put that on the table. That it, it like, has been understudied, but it has definitely been studied more, and there've just been I don't more, think been more time. Been, I think than the Johnson and Johnson vaccine nearly been the amount of, of studying that you're insisting there is. I'm not like, saying I, it's I, been like the most studied drug, but again, we've also just had it for a long time. So kind of like you get a better sense of like what the risks are. Like no, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I kind of think that men really haven't, you know, I, I feel like the... That is know, definitely a factor. I feel like Congress people really don't care. But like scientists still study it, right? Like science... Don't care like as Congress much about doesn't, women's 
Okay. But Congress doesn't completely control like studying of drugs. No, right, right, right. right. Drug that's manufacturers why, why do it, it and scientists do it. But I think you would agree with the basic premise that it has been more studied than the Johnson and Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Because it's been around for a uh, lot longer. Point, but I don't know if it's been given enough attention that it I don't know if it. I don't know if it's been given enough attention either. But I mean, like I you think, think so J and J. I mean, the beauty of the J and J vaccine is it's it's one shot, right? It's also easy so to store. It, it's right, it's easy to, to store. store. Yes. Yeah. Too like it doesn't need to be in these really like you know Freezing frozen. So the J and J vaccine was the one that was being used a lot to reach underserved and rural communities and like mobile vaccination uh, clinics. Like a lot of places, they are not near one of these mass sites that you know you see near us in Charlotte, like at uh, Bojangles Coliseum or you know Bank of America Stadium. You don't see that in a lot of rural communities. A lot of people don't have access to transportation. People don't have like pharmacies that are getting them or like pharmacies that really are close to them. So J and J was the one that was heavily being used in these communities. Um, and that's nothing to like gloss over or scoff at, especially because rural America, like they still have a pretty big dire COVID situation there. So that hurts just people who were on, you know, who were on the margins of, from of what I, But from what I've read, and again, it's not going to cover every single case, but most of the people who were scheduled to get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, regardless happened, if they, yeah. they lived in an urban or rural or wherever, they, suburban area, they have been scheduled to receive a, a, a vaccine with a different, you know, either Pfizer a or Moderna. A lot of them have, especially in North Because Carolina, there's so much, we have, we, we are, the United States has, we have so many Pfizer and Moderna shots going out every single day and being created every day. We have a lot of Pfizer, we had a Pfizer and Moderna surpluses to cover like this week of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I do think it'll come back online. And I don't know if you saw this, but doc, I, Dr. I'm, Fauci recently said he, he expects, expects the shot to return but that it may that it may come with restrictions and warnings. And that's probably right. the right move, right? Have the warning out there, be transparent. Maybe you don't want certain, you know, you know, in terms of age, you maybe want to do an age cutoff or a cutoff for people who've had side effects from vaccines or who might be vulnerable to this, right? So scientists can study it more. Right. Because, but, you know, and again, the United States is very fortunate that we have this surplus of vaccines with Pfizer and Moderna. And we've talked about this before. You had an idea where basically, you know, you send, we could send some of these Johnson & Johnson vaccines to countries that have not had as much access to vaccines. And I think that would be a very good idea because this is, you know, the global vaccination effort is not, you know, it's not been equitable in, in the least. And I think if this move spurs more generosity with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to give that to the countries that are struggling to, you know, get Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that. I mean, could so, end up being a blessing uh, in disguise. Uh, no, I, I, I think there's a wrong assumption that you're inheriting that, like, when, and I, I think we should. I mean, I, I pitched the idea that if we're not going to use Johnson & Johnson, that we're waiting on Johnson & Johnson to do what we did with our AstraZeneca surplus that the FDA never approved for emergency use and give them to different countries. You could, you know, give a lot of the Johnson Johnson that the U.S. currently has and gives them to COVAX, which is an organization that is um, giving vaccine, vaccine very program. cheap to yeah. countries who are have not had access to getting the vaccine or they could give them to Mexico or Canada like they did with the AstraZeneca vaccine or Central America which you know the covid destabilization of the central american countries is a, is a reason for the influx at the border too somewhat so you could you know build stronger alliances with the people around your borders and, and give them these life or death vaccines that they have not been able to get. However, life saving point, vaccines, the yes. life or death vaccines doesn't sound right. 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 
Yeah. But, um, wow, you didn't need to. <laughs> well, I, we were talking about like a, a rare blood. I mean, but they are life and death vaccines in terms You said of life death. or death vaccines. Life and death. Okay. Life and Cotter, death. sometimes you yeah. just. Okay. You need to work on that. You do um, this too. You're, no, really, you are the you're an English major. You are the He's an worst English major. Cotter, you are the, the worst, worst at this. You okay. are the worst at this. Cotter, I we'll, get imp- we'll get impartial judges at a later date to decide this. Um, now you're throwing me off my tracks. Oh, I am hesitant. You think that, like, vaccine... I, I think the inherent assumption is, okay, you know, J&J, AstraZeneca, they're putting these warning labels on them. There's, you know, there's going to increase vaccine hesitancy within the borders of these Western countries who can afford to um, because they have surpluses of other vaccines. But I think the vaccine hesitancy doesn't just stop in the U.S. It just doesn't stop in Germany. It doesn't stop in Italy. No, it doesn't stop. But these warning labels, which are negligible compared to the risk of COVID um, on these vaccines, it sends a message to the global world, right? But what's and the are, it's going to increase vaccine hesitancy in the global world too. I think that so if, you put, if, if, if you're attaching cases. these labels to Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca, and you're not appropriating that risk in in logical terms, then it could have real broader implications for these easily more manufacturable uh, vaccines like J and J and AstraZeneca are. And the global world will fall behind and, and, and increase vaccine hesitancy even more than there already is. And it could, you know, allow more variants to, to spike up and variants that could get out of the vaccine, more deadly, more transmissible variants. Like, this isn't just like, okay, it's just going to stop for two weeks and then that's going to be that. So, this, it's going to increase vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Like, anecdotally, I have been around people who were on the fence and they were going to get it. It's not great. Everything that happened with J and J and they're like, no, I don't want to get it now because I'm not sure if it's safe. And these are, and and, and these are very real people. Um, But it's not, it's not always helpful to extrapolate from anecdotal data. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's what the word anecdotally was put in there for. Um, but, like, I, I, I think it does have a real effect on global vaccine hesitancy and vaccine hesitancy within the United States. So can I... I, think, I and, and the way I would have done it is I would have had the FDA and CDC say, hey, there are these links and we're going to investigate There them. may be these links. J&J, yeah. J, there may be links. J, so you just did it again. J- <laughs> you, well, I'm trying to correct you. But you, it's things that don't need to be corrected on. I guess that's fair. Continue. <laughs> J and J. Um, uh, I, I would have said if I were the FDA and CDC, like they did with the AstraZeneca one in the beginning, hey, we're investigating these potential links to the coronavirus vaccine um, for the Johnson Johnson coronavirus vaccine. And we are going to investigate it and we're going to come out with more um, more knowledge about it soon. But... The risk remains very, very low at this point, and it is much safer to take than what you would get with the coronavirus. I think that is fair. I think that is right, and I think that would have been the best way to do it. So can I just have a quick rebuttal, then we can move on to a new topic. So I guess in, in, in the alternative world, 
like I, I mean, if there, if there was a world where either, you know, you vaccine hesitancy automatically increases by this pause or it doesn't increase without the pause, then I would agree with you. The problem is I think the bigger boon to vaccine hesitancy and a lot of people's reluctance would be if you just had these cases popping up in the media reporting on them and it kind of getting widespread across the globe because that's how, you know, news travels fast in the 21st century. And then nobody did anything about it. I think it would increase vaccine hesitancy if everyone acted like everything was normal and these links weren't concerning and they shouldn't be studied and we wouldn't take any action. And then, I mean, yes, you should quantify the risks are obviously a lot higher from COVID and, you know, some, some other household medication like birth control. You should definitely put that out there. But again, they're just trying to get, I think, a good sense of the extent of the problem. And, 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 and by studying it, maybe they can, you know, fix the vaccines and they can, if there is a causal link, and I think they have established a causal link with the AstraZeneca shot, right? I'm pretty sure that they have. Um, I think the UN did. I don't know if maybe I think the European Union Health Agency did as well. You can, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But you, you find that out and then you can, again, you can tailor it in a way that reduces or can get rid of those risks that could be changing the composition of the vaccine, altering it slightly. That could be only giving it to certain populations in terms of like, in terms of age and, you know, if they've ever had a vaccine allergic reaction, or if I think they're at risk for blood clots, you could measure things like platelets and you could talk to your doctor about it. I just think that this just shows to me that the system is working and that they really care about the safety of these vaccines. And we don't know how prevalent this is, right? I mean, this is anecdotal data at this point. It could be, you know, I think the AstraZeneca one originally started with, what, 11 cases, and now there are, what, I, I don't know the exact number of cases that have been, con- or not confirmed, but cases, I think it's over 100 at this point, of this very rare blood clot being potentially linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we don't know how widespread this is. I think that this was a move to me, and I think I, I've heard some people kind of also echo this. Again, it, it, particularly, I've seen a lot of articles written about how this kind of bolsters confidence that the vaccine system is working the same way that it was it last week or how many weeks ago was it the johnson and johnson distribution error with that ingredient i think it just shows that people are paying attention they're making sure it's safe they're not trying to suppress this information they're taking this information in and they're acting upon it and again so, i i do think that it will the, the johnson and johnson vaccine if i had to bet it will go back online we will start using it again within the week or within a week or two depending on how these studies go and then you have the warning labels on there and you show that the system is, is, is working and that people are actually like taking these cases seriously. So I think, um, again, you could have studied it. And I'm not saying don't study it and to just like bury it under the rug that the, or, there are these uh, rare potential links um, from the Jack Johnson & Johnson vaccine to potential rare blood clots. I'm saying keep it online, study it, say the risk is very low at this point um just know that you know there is this small um this small number of people getting these rare blood clots we're investigating we're going to figure it out so i think the online problem and 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 you're saying that you do think that's going to you know do make it it seems more transparent that we're shutting this down and people are going to have more confidence in the vaccine because the system is working what think about what happened with the astrazeneca vaccine once european union commission I was speaking, and I think some people might have more, but I, I'm obviously not trying to generalize that because I, no. I don't think we know the effect this is going to have. But, 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 but like, even if you look at the public, which was already I, high, I, if you look at the public appalling, 
uh, and I don't know if you have, of the confidence in the AstraZeneca vaccine after the European Union Science Commission came out with the report that they did not recommend it for it and it was linked to those blood clots and that they put the age limits on it. Um, the opinions about the confidence in taking the AstraZeneca vaccine and vaccine hesitancy with it were skyrocketing and it was because of that announcement. Different approach. Canada came out and AstraZeneca is their most widely used vaccine. They're behind on their vaccine program. Canada's Science Health Commission said that while there is a, a one in 100,000 very low risk of blood clots associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, the risk of getting the coronavirus is much higher and we are not putting a cap, any age cap on it at all. And it is a safe drug. It is a drug that's going to help us beat this pandemic. And that is exactly true. And the United Kingdom, you know, they'd had it where anyone under the age of 30 could be eligible to and be offered a, a different vaccine, which I think is a good, smart way of doing it. A lot of these other European countries said under 50 or 60 will give you a different vaccine. It's not I don't even know if they have like an option in place. But I mean, it's just I, I, I don't agree with it. I think the U.S. was in kind of like a bubble of privilege where they had um, so many Moderna and Pfizer vaccines that they could afford to do it. But I think what it's going to do with global and national vaccine hesitancy uh that that is so much more harmful than anything that the j and j could do and it's going to be jeopardized more lives being lost from the coronavirus in my opinion so i i definitely understand that view and like i, I mean i think this is a very you know i, I think both sides of in terms of this discussion you, you make legitimate points but again, I think the hesitancy, first of all, it was always there. I think like a quarter of the American public has been vaccine hesitant for months at this point throughout the vaccine distribution. And it was higher before the vaccine, right? Once they, more people started seeing their loved ones get it and be fine, I think vaccine hesitancy went down. I think the vaccine hesitancy was going to increase regardless of what the FDA and the CDC did here because of these reported cases and because these cases get sensationalized by the media and because we see these types of cases, and especially like in the United States, you know, you say we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, and I, I take your point about other countries as well, but you're saying we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, why would I take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? I think if we can find a way, if we can study this, and the studies, I don't know how long they're going to take, but if we can find a way to quantify the risk in a somewhat accurate frame, we, we, like one in 100,000, one in 200,000, whatever the numbers, if we can get a good sense of that, if we can get a sense of who's more at risk, and if we can get a sense of what symptoms to watch out for if you took this vaccine and when to be concerned. To me, that level of transparency required a pause. I mean, it, it not, it's, but like it required a pause in that during that two week interval, if you kept the Johnson and Johnson vaccines going and you saw more of these cases, people would have been for a angry that the government didn't issue a pause and B people would not be, ta would not be taking the vaccine with a full understanding of the potential risk. Um, but I it should agree. be put into context. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. agree. It should I, be put into context. I agree with you that, things. like, um, yeah, the the contextual thing that you're saying, like, even the media framework, like, I feel like the media has not handled some of these headlines very well. Like, the uh, what was catching all the headlines on New York Times, on CNN, on Fox News, et cetera, was six people, rare blood clot with Johnson & Johnson, pause. It wasn't one in less than one in one million people have blood clot that may not actually be linked to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. 
there wasn't that level of transparency. I mean, that's not really a good headline, but it's true. And it's just like in, in general with how the media has covered COVID, they just came out with a report that like 0. 0.00008 percent, it was something along that. There were a lot of zeros. Eight percent of people who had the vaccine got mild COVID symptoms. And those and like, headlines are everywhere. I think you have to you have to counteract for the fact that the media, not just in the United States, but everywhere, has been very irresponsible, and that regardless of what the FDA and the CDC did, this was going to become a big deal, and it was going to increase vaccine hesitancy. I think, again, the only benefit of putting the pause on for me, and there's not a lot, and there are some downsides for it, right? I mean, there maybe a couple people don't get the vaccine that would have gotten the vaccine, but I think that would have happened anyway in terms of vaccine hesitancy, but maybe some people had a tough time getting the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, and they couldn't get the double shot for some reason. So I'm not saying that it didn't have any effect, but by and large, it didn't have a huge effect on the distribution. Well, Right, but let, let, let me let me finish. There was the headlines, like it was like the most negligible amount of people getting the coronavirus after the um, after their shot. Like it was actually so much better than anyone. Yeah. Like it was huge. It was like oh my god. Like the risk is even lower than people are thinking about getting the coronavirus after you know getting vaccinated, and it should have been celebrated. But instead, the the media headline was. One percent of Americans get coronavirus after the vaccine. It wasn't the point zero 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 eight percent that was the actuality. It was one percent. Like like the way the media has has framed some of these headlines and has been like like propagating statistics that aren't true because they can round up to one and it, it's a nice clean number, or that we can just say six instead of one and you know less than one in six million people have a blood clot. I think that's very harmful, and I I, I think um, like. Americans and other people's lack of, of taking statistics into context is very harmful in terms of vaccine hesitancy and COVID risk and in general, just, just how bad the coronavirus has been and how good and safe these vaccines are. I think they've been um, at odds with, with how the media has portrayed them. I will also say, and another good example of this is, I don't know if you saw this, but there was recently a couple of studies, but one published by The Lancet, which is the Yale, I think it's a Yale medical journal. And they found that like out, outdoor transmission of COVID was extraordinarily low. Like your chances, not like it's not negligible, but like your chances of getting COVID indoors is substantially higher than it was outdoors. So, and I think you saw a lot of people in the media kind of really shame, really do a lot of shaming of people who went to the beach and who, who went outside when, I mean, again, there's always a risk. And like going to outdoor bars or having but yeah, but, like a but going, but, but the way this, I, I think the media has done a bad job contextualizing exactly the risks. They've overinflated it in some areas and they've under, and, and they've over-exaggerated in some areas and they've kind of under-exaggerated in others. And they did a very poor job. So generally, I think that just leads to vaccine hesitancy because you have a media that is being irresponsible. And I don't think, the FDA, CDC, not doing anything about that would have necessarily changed that. But I definitely no. see where you're coming from. No, no. But, um, yeah. No, I, I sent you that link. It was like 97% of all coronavirus clusters were all linked to indoor settings transmissions. And that the, the risk of outdoor COVID transmission was even lower. That just came out this week than uh, people have been saying. So, like, outdoor activities, like, if you have good ventilations, you're outside, you're having a drink with your vaccinated squad on the patio, which me and my vaccinated squad did for the first time this week, um, that risk is incredibly low. And yeah. is pretty safe. And, like, yeah, the media has been lambasting and portraying these people, you know, going outside and 
to having as murderers, right? I mean, they. I mean, I, not, I, I, not I don't, if you remember early on in the pandemic, there was on, like a, there was. I think it was a, it was a, some like person in Florida went around with like a Grim Reaper suit to people on the beach. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I do remember that, and and yeah, I mean, a lot of it is coming from you know the ignorance of not having studied how coronavirus you know transmitted. Um, and still gaining knowledge on, on how it actually spreads. And, and this is an evol- a rapidly evolving situation. It is evolving. So you can't blame the media for everything. A lot of it was just we didn't know. And no. the same thing is true for scientists. So, put, but put that's more good caveats in your well. headlines. Put more caveats in your headlines. Yes. Or have I, su- have scientists write articles about the COVID. Don't oh, know. I don't know about that. I don't know how great of, uh, of messengers they are either. I guess that's fair. It, it was not really a lot of great. It's a very complex issue. So it, it is a complex issue. Yeah. Have a scientist double check your a your headline and b your your article. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. So we, um, we got to move okay. on. Okay. But now we're gonna move on, and you are going to talk about the Supreme Court and the bill that was introduced, the Democratic bill that was introduced um, in the House to expand the Supreme Court to 13 justices. Connor, take it away. So this bill was introduced in the House and the Senate. It was led by Ed Markey, a Massachusetts senator. He's a Democrat, very progressive. In the Senate, and Jerry Nadler, a New York representative in the House. Uh, the bills were introduced shortly after President Biden announced that he would be forming a commission to study potentially reforming the court. That was about a week ago. It was, a, I think, it was a bipartisan commission of a, a lot of experts, and it was really fulfilling a campaign promise. When he introduced the executive order to create the commission, it was met with a lot of skepticism that any action would actually get taken. Now, it should be noted that before I go into the exact details of this bill and some of the things that. House, uh, House, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said she would not bring this bill up for a vote. And the reason why is it is a politically toxic idea. So there has not been, there has really been a dearth of polling on the issue, unfortunately. But there were some polls conducted when, in, in, near around the time Amy Coney Barrett was uh, confirmed to the court, right before Trump left office in like late 2020. So an October poll of the issue, and this is October of, of 2020. Found that that voters only thirty four percent of voters approved of increasing the number of Supreme Court justices, while forty seven percent disapproved of the idea. That's a pretty bad margin. It's bad. It's clearly bad politics. I don't think you, either of us would debate that this is like a good, a master class political move, especially when the chances of actually increasing the number of Supreme Court justices with these narrow majorities in the House and the Senate is negligible. Right? It's basically there's no. Joe Manchin's not going to vote for that. Kirsten Cinema. I think there. Are, I don't even know if it would pass the Jobs House. Like testers, Democrats yeah, have a very narrow majority in the House. It was. I mean, I think the idea and it was probably just to show that they're doing something, maybe to try and I guess pressure the Supreme Court to not issue any radical rulings, which was pretty much the same result of when FDR FDR tried the court packing scheme back in the 1930s. But again, bad political move, right? I mean, it, it was a bad. It was a political misstep, I think. Um, although, you know, the reason why the number 13 doesn't upset me as much as almost any other number is it correlates with the number of appellate courts in the United States. And there was a general idea that you want to match the number of Supreme Court justices to the number of appellate courts in the United States. That has kind of been a general principle through much of American history. So we have, you know, 13 Court of Appeals right now, including the D.C. Court of Appeals. So that the fact that they chose 13 and not another number at least as kind of like a, a legal nerd and a Supreme Court nerd, makes me a little bit less 
I, I would say reluctant to, or a little bit less, I guess, hostile to the idea. Although I would not, I, I think in general, if you, if you increase the number to 13, the second Republicans get control of the Senate and, and the presidency and the House, which might be four years, they're going to add like six or eight. Or, and it's just like a back and forth issue that will eventually completely, I think, break the court apart at its seams, which is unfortunate. Um, because I mean, and, and the, obviously the court isn't perfect now, right? I mean, it is far Not from perfect and, the, the it, and it needs really. to be stated that the reason why Democrats are doing this, they're doing this in response to the extreme actions of Republican senators during the Trump administration and during the tail end of the Obama administration. They effectively stole two Supreme court seats. They denied Merrick Garland, who is now the attorney general, even a hearing during the end of the Obama administration because he nominated him to be a Supreme Court justice replacing Antonin Scalia. They didn't even hold a hearing. They put, And then when Trump got elected, they put in Neil Gorsuch. And they didn't hold a hearing. And they the didn't hold a hearing because their argument was that you cannot yes. confirm a Supreme Court justice in an election year, which is when it was at the tail end last year of Obama's uh, presidency. It was eight or nine months before the 2016 election. And then, and then of course, Connor, what we all remember what happened. The- so about, um, about less than a month before the election, I think absentee ballots were already mailed in at this they point. Were. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Uh, a liberal, she's an, she, I mean, she's an icon. She's one of the greatest Supreme Court justices of all time. She is a top three in terms of her dissents, I think, in the history of the Supreme Court. She is, I mean, her dissent in Shelby County versus Holder was, was brilliant. But, uh, and she was obviously one of the great. I mean, she's just amazing. I mean, we, we if we have if we ever do a podcast with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it would not be hard to fill that podcast because she is, she's a legend, and she was a legend as a as a civil rights attorney too, fighting for the rights of women and oppressed people. I mean, she is just phenomenal. Anyway, um, that's kind of like a an RBG stand aside, but so she passed away a month before the twenty twenty election. Republicans rushed to confirm Amy Coney Barrett, who is now on the court. Um, and again, a and month before the saying, election, and, and they cemented a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. And the same Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, who said, yes. we cannot confirm or even hold a hearing for Rank hypocrisy, yes. Because he, you know, it's an election year, eight or nine months before, when in a month before, and when absentee ballots were already cast, they threw in uh, ACB. And it was despicable. RBG's dying wish was to not confirm me until the next president is elected, whether that be Trump or Biden. And it happened to be Biden. But, you know, as you said, an icon, a lionized Supreme Court justice, RBG, was not granted her final dying wish. And now we have six Republicans on the Supreme Court. Yes, and so I, I, I think a very, very, very strong argument from Democrats that Republicans broke the Supreme Court with this unprecedented behavior. That if the normal course just played out, Democrats would have had a five-four majority at the end of the Obama administration and going into the Trump administration, and then as Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away would have happened during Trump. Either way, it would have been five-four Republicans again, right? I think. Personally, I would like to see a Supreme Court, and this is not going to happen. I would like to see a Supreme Court justice, either maybe Kav- I mean Kavanaugh. He sh- he shouldn't be on the court either. We we know what happened with him during his hearing. Either Kavanaugh or Roberts or somebody, just a one of those six conservatives who care about the legitimacy of the court. I would like to see them either substantially moderate their opinions, and we've seen that a little bit from Roberts 
responding to institutional concerns. But now we need, first of all, we would need another conservative. Two of them. We would need two to do that now because of the six-way majority. Or I'd like to see one of them step down, right? I mean, uh, they could potentially, they're not going to do it. They're but, not. But, I mean, Roberts is very concerned with the legitimacy of the court. So I could see him potentially stepping down and then Breyer could retire. He's the oldest Supreme Court justice right now. He's a, he's a demo. He's appointed by Clinton. And then it could be a 5-4 majority, and it's basically where it likely would have been, you know, before the Republicans in the Senate did their really unprecedented actions. So, yeah, basically the, the, the bill would increase it from, from 13 to 9. And, I mean, I'm more receptive. There are other ideas of reforming the court. I'm more open to other re- court reform ideas like term limits which would probably be like 15, 20, 18 years, whatever the number would be, and then you rotate them to the appellate courts um, for the rest of their careers because they're appointed for a lifetime, so you couldn't just kick them off the court. Um, I'm more receptive to, and Pete Buttigieg had this idea, if you're going to increase the court, have maybe nine or ten permanent members and then like a rotating cast of five or something along those lines to where the composition of the court changes so you don't know whether it's going to be a liberal or conservative court, right? And then the reform I'm most in favor in, and the state of Delaware does this. They, 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 they have, I think they either have seven or nine Supreme Court justices. They make sure that the that no political party gets to appoint more than a majority plus one or a, a, a bare majority of the Supreme Court justices. So let's say they, I think they have nine Supreme Court justices. I could be wrong about that, but let's say let's say hypothetically, in a, with the Supreme Court with nine justices. The Republicans could not appoint more than five of those justices. The Democrats could not appoint more than five of those justices to prevent a 6-3 majority, which I don't think a 6-3 majority is necessary in either direction. As a liberal, I wouldn't mind a 6-3 majority on the liberal side. I would say it'd be a much less, and we both would be much more receptive to that. But I think the idea of keeping it somewhat balanced, keeping that five, you know, no more than five Democrat or Republican on the court at a specific time, I think that reform would be terrific and there are some there would be some constitutional challenges to that as there was with the delaware case um i i don't i, I and, and and there would be a constitutional challenge to that but i think that would do a great job of keeping the court somewhat balanced i think that's a great idea um what delaware does i mean yeah. making sure that it is within those boundaries no i mean tilt. yeah i mean there is a like a when was the last time when it got to like a seven to two or eight to one did it ever get like that or six to three the max so early on, during, or I know early on during when the sport was first formed, I mean, well, I think well, most when, of them like, were put by like more, more modern day, like, you know, more I don't think Fox, there's, so. I, I can't think of a time when there was a 7-2 Supreme Court in the last 50 years. It, I mean, right. again, because it, 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 a lot of it's just, I mean, it's, it's luck, right? But I'm, it's, I mean, it, but, I'm but it's inevitable, that, right? It's it inevitable. is inevitable that it's it will happen, happen because with, I mean, the Democrats controlled the White House from 1933 when FDR was sworn in. All the way until nineteen until nineteen sixty nine, with the exception of Dwight Eisenhower for, for his two terms. So, I mean, we've had long periods of one party rule. During those times, yes, you're gonna have you're, you're gonna get some seven twos and six threes, and I, and I guarantee, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I mean, Republicans controlled the White House from Lincoln through uh, Woodrow Wilson, with the exception of a, a one four year term by Benjamin Harrison, who didn't even win the popular vote. So there have definitely been courts that have been stacked in either direction. And I think putting that mechanism in there to prevent the courts from swinging too wildly in one direction or another would be a good way to, A, depoliticize the court a little bit, 
and and b prevent this type of situation from happening where one of the parties just decides we don't want to abide by the kind of the, the normal rules and procedures anymore we're just going to ram through as many justices as possible yeah i think that might be like the ultimate best way to, to there make there would sure be some legal challenges to it there though, definitely yes. would be legal challenges to it and uh who would be deciding that legal challenge at the end of the day Yes, that 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 would be of concern. But I, 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 I think I think it's a Republican Supreme Court. But 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 could you imagine like Robert, Roberts and ACB and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Thomas Alito just all looking at each other as like which ones are going to be? <laughs> I don't think Roberts. I don't think I. I do. I genuinely think Roberts has shown that he cares for the legitimacy of the court, and even if it's just an image because he's the chief justice. Right, because we saw him in the Affordable Care Act case. He was the vote that saved the Affordable Care. Right, he was the vote that prevented Trump from just running roughshod over the Administrative Procedures Act when he tried to add the citizenship question and he tried to rescind DACA. You know, he's the one who preserved the abortion precedent in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt with his concurring opinion last term. So we've seen him in very key moments, and he also joined the six-three majority that expanded Title VII to cover uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So we have right, seen him at times I, I, I think, you know, take bold stances I, I, to preserve I don't have fun. I mean, Roberts has done some, you know, some, some decent things. On voting rights, he's horrible, though. And that's an objective fact. Yeah, I'm he's not very extreme on voting again. rights and religious liberty. I'm not going to bring that up again. But, like, now, again, you're going to – now you're relying on either – one of Trump's three, right? Because I mean, Alito and Thomas are just like so far they're, yeah, they're out far. to the right. On that most issues, they're not going to be receptive. So now it's like, okay, are we going to rely on ACB or Gorsuch Kavanaugh or, or, or such? It and then like, you would still need. And, and uh, oh, Roberts is obviously so not a solid vote for liberals. No, he's not right? either. So like, you, you can't take that oh, for granted. It's so it's it, it, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, that's. Yeah, RGB passing away. When I found out, man, I dropped my phone. I I, uh, uh, I don't want to remember. Yeah, I I and I didn't expect much from Senate Republicans. It's not like I was expecting them to all of a sudden rediscover their virtue. But it was also, I mean, I think this should be mentioned. rediscover. When when did yeah, they? Yeah, have... yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're doing this too now. You you you're doing this. <laughs> no, you're doing I did, it too I now. But okay, so they I didn't I didn't expect much from them, but. The polling of this at the time was almost as unpopular as packing the Supreme Court. Filling our RBG seat before the election was almost as unpopular as adding Supreme Court justices. It's not quite as unpopular, according to most of the polls. So I thought maybe they'd be hemmed in a little bit by public opinion. Clearly, I was wrong there. Um, and, and, you know, in hindsight, I don't know why I thought they would be hemmed in by public opinion. It's a minoritarian rural party, right? They don't, they have, they've only won the, the popular vote for the presidency once. Since 1992, they just answer to whatever is in their own power interest. Their interest, yes, yes. So that again, I I, I want to caution this. Do not. I'm not. I don't think anyone should be mad if you're like a, an objective observer. Obviously, if you're a Republican, you're going to be mad at Democrats doing this because you want Republicans to be in power. But an objective observer should point out that the only reason this is happening is because of the unprecedented behavior by Republicans. Over the past 10, 15 years, in terms of how they've handled the Supreme Court, you know, I mean, they also got the filibuster for the Supreme Court nominees. I mean, again, Democrats did it when they were in charge for lower court nominees and cabinet officials. But I mean, really, the nuclear option was for the Supreme Court justices. And it, and it did, I think, again, Republicans passed really young, really conservative justices. 
right? I mean, they're putting they're not putting in place a lot of moderates. So again, I'm open to Supreme Court reform. I just don't think this was a great political move by Democrats, especially because they, they the chance of getting this done was zero, right? All you're doing is like gift wrapping a a talking point for Republicans in the midterms. They, you know, he tr- they tried to pack the courts, and they're going to distort it, obviously. Like, the actual facts are a handful of Democrats, you know, uh, put this up for a vote, and the, the, the leaders of the party opposed it. They didn't put it up for a vote. They didn't take it seriously. But th- that's not the context that's going to be given by Republicans. Right? Republicans are just going to say Democrats tried to pack the courts. Right, and there's a nugget of truth to that. Where there would not have been, yeah, if this but wasn't it's, put it's, up. It's, it's always like hidden within, like yes, it's it's bad faith, which is similar but, to like the Green New Deal and like yes, yes, Medicare for all. They're just using buzz buzzwords that like they try to connect in their minds of. But like, it's effective, right? Like, it's, it's very effective. effective. It's, 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 it's fear driving, voting. but it's disingenuous. It's dishonest, and yeah, you know, it is. But yeah, so basically, win elections, I guess. So my my view is, I I. I oppose simply just increasing the number of Supreme Court judges. I'd be more open to other reforms. I don't know how you feel about it. And, and also, it was an objectively bad political move. Oh, we talked about this before the show, and we got into it a lot. I mean, I, I think that five to four idea, like that cap, is very strong. And honestly, it's probably my favorite route in terms of, you know, Supreme Court reform. But I also think, like you do, and don't even counteract, because I know you have so many... Uh, you have so many adverse opinions on this, um, but I think that you know Supreme Court justices should be elected. I, I disagree. I, I think we do that in we do that in states like in North Carolina. They some do it. states, not all. All states uh, have not all states. We do it in certain states, and I think like you know outside of an, an electoral college you know system, which we should not have for Supreme Court justices, we shouldn't have for presidents. Period. I think like having a popular vote decide who gets onto the court. Is is a so? Would you just hold a snap election every time a justice passed away? I think and you would, ha- and, ha- and, 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 and just like you would with with elections. You primary get your best Supreme Court justice out. But like, there. what if the Supreme Court justice dies? Yes, then you have to hold snap elections. But, or, like, or, or, or how long? No, no. The thing is, like, I mean, right? When they had the transition, when RGB died, RGB died. That was one of the shortest transitions. It was a short window, but I mean, like, you can have a vacancy on the court until that gets figured out. But I mean, I just think, you know, Supreme Court justices have huge implications, huge on our lives. On and the laws of the they land, are du- and they are indirect. To not just be a boys' club of these minority uh, party rule, white male Republicans just handpicking uh, Brett Kavanaugh and ACB and Neil Gorsuch or whoever the hell they want without actually having to answer to the people. But I mean, I just- right now the composition of the United States is there are more Democrats than Republicans. That's a fact. The, 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 the reality is that Democratic uh, opinions and Democratic um, stances and policies are more popular than Republican policies. But that would not be reflective at all if you looked at the composition of the Supreme Court. And I think that the Supreme Court should look how the American populace feels, right? I, I, I mean, I just feel that with, with all branches of a government. A quick rebuttal, and then we'll move on to the next topic. So I think that, I mean, again, Supreme Court, they're indirectly, it's an indirect, because the American people choose their senators, and they choose their House members imperfectly because of the systems. I think the problem is the composition of the Senate. I don't think the problem is the way that we put Supreme Court justices up. I think if the Senate 
just wasn't so skewed towards well, small rural states. I agree. Then the idea of senators confirming it, right? If, if, if the Senate reflected the popular will in even the slightest way, like if we had Puerto Rico as a and state, we if we had Washington, D.C., that, that whole- would be better to me than just opening it up for an election. Because again, I, I think, sure. I mean, even if I don't like the Republican justices, but they are qualified. They did serve uh, on like, fe- most of them served on fe- as federal judges as law scholars, they were, you know, uh, you know, legal scholars, they were legal professors, they were people who understand the law, who can write about the law, and who, you know, when you read their opinion, you can tell that they've dedicated their, a lot of their life to, like, studying the law. My only worry is that maybe somebody who doesn't have share that same passion would get on the court, and then they wouldn't understand the law, and and, and, and they might, and I think that would be but bad. Like I, I feel like you would, you would have to get somebody who made those qualifications. Like they right. would have and to I would obviously have, pass I would have the bar. That for Trump. Would have I would have hoped that for the president as well. And law. but like I'm, I'm saying, like there are ways to do it in my mind to pick vetted nominees. That just sounds complicated. Sides. But, but I. I it does, but I feel like it would give you a more representative and better system than what we have but now. The problem, you could the, have, but the Congress is what's broken, right? Yes, it's but the thing the is, everything. I mean, the electoral college is broken. It, it favors Republicans, giving yes. land and rural areas disproportionate amount of you know amount of power to choose who's president. The Senate is disproportionate Republican because there are more rural red states than our blue, more populous states with that have more people. The House is, is leaning Republican because they're, they control the state legislators for the same reason, and they can gerrymander their districts into however the hell they want and just throw crap out the window like they do with Dan Crenshaw's district in Texas, which looks like the most like screwed up like out of nowhere shape someone has ever made like a three-year-old like throwing paint on a blank canvas and saying hey here's a district like i mean all there's so much about the composition of the senate and the house and the executive branch that like i it's baffling and then now that is reflective in the supreme court too so i mean like yes the the overall goal is to get rid of the filibuster give dc fix and the, just, fix congress. just fix congress just fix congress and fix just the electoral fix college congress. but that's also not- I, I and i know that obviously the constitution says the senate is advises a consensus for cabinet nominees and supreme court officials I think it should be the house too because the house is more representative of the people and it will always be more representative sure are you sure about people. that the House, I mean, the Democrats control the House right now. The House, because it's district, and we, obviously with the gerrymandering, it's distorted, but the House That's is a better saying, reflection. Like, it's but, but, a better reflection of the popular will than the Senate. I mean, right now, sure, but I, I, at the same time, I'm not I, I'm not sure, like, how much confidence we can have in that going forward either. With You need to, the, the, the big, the, at the end of the day, the root of a lot of American problems is Congress. It's the way that it's been the way that it is currently constructed. You need to fix some of that. And until you do that, I don't know how much any of these reforms would really help. But we do have to move on. And voting, too, in America, right? The Electoral College, all that stuff, like gerrymandering, that kind of stuff is going to have an effect on... It has an effect on voter turnout, too, right? It's not that... It's not... It's I Yes, I agree. (laughs) It's not not just that, you know, we have a problem... Gerrymandering doesn't just, you know, make it easier for Republicans to to, to maintain power... But in those states, in those districts where Republicans have like guaranteed power, it decreases turnout, right? If you're a Democrat in one of those districts, you have no hope of ever having anyone except the Republican, you're less likely to vote. So, so have you seen what Dan Crenshaw's district actually looks like? I'm sure House, it's ridiculous. Texas. I mean, there are a lot of Bro, ridiculous things. Again, it looks like... 
Like when I was three, I just took like a bunch. Tweet of, a like, picture out of this on the from the pod from the, from our Twitter. Yes, yeah, I'll post it, bro. It's insane. It. It's okay. insane. It's yes, funny. they need to fix Congress. Um, we can both agree on that. And on that note, we will be moving on to the next topic. Yes, Con. Good facilitation. So the next topic we're going to talk about, and it is, it is a very heavy topic, and it has been a heavy topic in America's history for a very long time, at the fabric of America's history. Um, and, you know, we had a decent hiatus from some of it with the coronavirus and now life is getting back to normal but it's gun violence and it's mass shootings and it's gun police violence which really never left even with the and not just gun police violence it's what also happened to george floyd it's police violence in general it's excessive use of force yeah it's excessive use of force against disproportionate black and brown people yes um so this week we were we were heartbroken to hear about another mass shooting, and there have been like an insane amount of mass shootings in 2021 alone. But in Indianapolis, there was a mass shooter who worked at that FedEx facility, and he killed eight of his former co-workers. Um, it was absolutely tragic, absolutely, absolutely gutting and harrowing, and it's just a story of America again. And, you know, nothing... Nothing, nothing, nothing has been done for a very long time. I mean, Biden issued those executive actions, which, you know, kind of trimmed around the edges and didn't address very it limited really at scale. all. Um, and there have been uh, gun reform measures in past in the House and has gone to the Senate. And uh, they're filibustered and just have no chance of passing. Um, and then we had the horrific shooting, killing, murder of Dante Wright in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. Um, he was shot and killed because the police officer in the in the body cam video said that she thought she had her taser um, as he was getting back in his car and mistook it for a taser when in reality it was a gun, shot, killed him. 20-year-old, I believe, may have been 19. 20. He was 20, I think. And Freak. he had a... Kid, kid, I believe. Yep, he had a kid. And this is, you know, going on in the same place, miles away, where the uh, Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd last summer is taking place. And it was absolutely gut-wrenching and horrible. And it's it's a story of, uh, of a police apparatus in the United States that is ill-equipped to deal with this was a freaking traffic stop, man. This was a traffic stop. Why do you need to have a gun for a traffic stop? You shouldn't. So I, I read somewhere, and I think this would be a very good solution. I mean, A, I think you should deprioritize traffic shoot. enforcement. You no, can't you shoot need to de- at moving vehicles either. I that's obvious, and that's just taser. common sense. Even but with that's, taser, that's not a law. That's not a law. No, 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 no. It's not a law. But that should be department policy. Like They should have that across... It definitely should be. But I think the other thing is, again, you, you need to deprioritize some of these quote-unquote traffic violations. I mean, I think... Especially during COVID. What they be- I think um, what Dante Wright thought he was being pulled over was because he had an air freshener in, in his backseat, which is apparently illegal in Minnesota, which is ridiculous. I mean, there are just absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous laws on the books that basically allow police officers to have this pretextual reason to pull people over 
and then they harass them, and then they investigate other crimes, and they you know, they escalate situations, and then tragedies like this happen, right? And that's just horrible. I mean, it's you you need to deprioritize this, right? Someone driving with a with a freaking air freshener in the back of their car that's not worth pulling someone over. It's just not. It's just not. And then on top of that, you I think I honestly think we have we have technology. Just take pictures of someone speeding. I don't know why you need cops enforcing this stuff. If there's somebody Man, who's really dangerous, yeah. if there's somebody who's really dangerous, like they're speeding and they're running into people, yes, have EMTs respond. Have social workers. Have cops well, respond. Go ahead, sir. But if you know, if you if you just have someone who's going ten miles over the speed limit, or if you have somebody with an air freshener in the back of their car, they don't need. They're not a danger to others. It's it's a bad law. Some of these laws just need to be scrapped off the books. I, um, you know, I, I lived in England for a couple months when I was, I was studying over there. And it's such a different world. Like, the police officers, by and large, they don't carry guns, especially for traffic enforcement. Like, the militarization of the police force, and, like, I mean, they have other really, like, like crazy tear gas and other militarized weapons that they use on protesters and everything. But I think like even gun reforms in terms of police officers, like you can have special units that carry guns like they do in England to, you know, if there is an actual really bad situation with guns, call them in, have them very available. Um, But like for every police officer who's doing a freaking traffic stop for air fresheners, like, I mean, you can have your taser, you can have your pepper spray. At the end of the day, but he just shouldn't have been pulled hell, over. I mean, he should not have been pulled hell, over. He shouldn't have been pulled hell over. are you having a gun for a traffic stop? And I think it's in the broader conversation of, of gun reform. Like, it should not happen. And not to mention, we also saw the slaying of Adam Toledo, 13-year-old boy, hands up, hands up, shot to death in Chicago, the prosecutor lied about it. Mayor Lori Lightfoot lied about it. They said he had a gun in his hand when he was shot. He did not. He had his hands up. 13-year-old boy. This story, I, this is the same freaking story every time. Black and brown people being killed by the police. No repercussions. And they get away with it. Yeah, we need, more, we need more accountability professionally for police officers, civilly for police officers, and criminally for police officers. And we don't have that right now. And, and, and some of the things, you know, repealing qualified immunity, make it easier to sue state officials, including police officers. You know, putting in place clear standards for use of force. And I, and I think right now the, the, the standard for cops for lethal, use of lethal force is a reasonable suspicion of harm of themselves or others. First of all, it's a very vague standard, and second of all, it's a very—it's a relatively low standard. That's the standard for self-defense for anybody. There's a presumption that cops are always acting in self-defense, and that's just wrong. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get a, a conviction of a cop. And then, I, 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 I guess one thing I wanted to put out there is, I think Kim Potter was the cop who killed Dante Wright. She was charged with second-degree manslaughter. And uh, I don't think the and the officer who who killed Toledo was not charged, which is part of the prosecutor lied about that particular part of the video, and he wasn't and the police officer wasn't charged. 
at least at this point. I think they already announced the charging decision. Yeah, um, it's just uh, it's crazy, and it's heartbreaking. But it's the fabric of racism in America. It's the fabric of of gun violence in America, and that gun violence is not just you know stop at mass shootings. It's police. It's suicides. It's it's a whole range of other things that need to be talked about broadly in gun reform. And, you know, Chris Cuomo, I don't know if we're using the Cuomo name in, in grace anymore, but he said on his show the other, uh, I think it was yesterday, and Republicans are making this a controversy, but it's 100% true. He said that um, people are not going to care and people aren't, aren't caring because it's not white children who are I would say enough people don't killed. care. Yes, enough, enough people, people don't, don't care. care. People do Until, care. Yes, they do. Until it is white kids being killed by police officers. And that's 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 true. It's 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 severely unfortunate. But it's true that there is a lot of people who are seeing these black and brown kids being killed, murdered by police officers and looking the other way because this the long system of racism and distancing themselves from treating African Americans. They just view it as someone as else's beings. problem. Yeah. As, as, as it's literal, it's it, it, it is distancing their empathy, it is distancing a lot of stuff and justifying a police officer killing a 13-year-old boy, killing a 19, 20-year-old boy. It's ridiculous, it's horrible, and there needs to be reform. There needs to. There needs to be consequences for the actions of these officers, right? I mean, again, professionally, civilly, criminally, and we have a lot of barriers in place right now that make that really hard. And then there needs to be broader reforms. I mean, just I, the the House of Representatives passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It would do things like creating a nas- national police misconduct registry, so like a an officer with a lot of complaints can't just bounce around to different departments. Very common sense. It would create a bigger role for states' attorneys generals and the Department of Justice for investigating these crimes because they're not as directly linked to local police officers as local district attorneys are. Right? right. And just some very simple changes, you know, banning the use of chokeholds and neck restraints, banning no knock warrants at night. I mean, these are just, I think, very simple ideas that could save lives. They are. Um, and this is a conversation we could we could go on and on about. And, you know, it deserves that attention, but, um, and it's, 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 it's something that we're going to have to talk about again, because I'm guaranteed this is not going to be the last, it's not going to be the last mass shooting. It's not going to be the last police officer killing a black or brown person with impunity again. It will happen and nothing will change. Hopefully something will change eventually, but it seems like you're in this hopeless box. And with that, though, we are going to transition here to um, our last topic of the day. And it is Alexei Navalny, the, uh, the, the martyr in Russia who is Putin's biggest critic, Putin's biggest political force, um, Putin's political opponent, sorry. Um, Alexei Navalny was thrown in jail for bogus charges that... Putin just wanted to get him in jail after returning from Germany after being poisoned by Putin and his government to try to kill him. Came back, they got poisoned with a nerve agent, 
came back, arrested when he landed, and now he's attempting a hunger strike. Ostensibly, it's been three weeks since he has had food, and he is in dire, dire condition. Um, doctors say he could die within days. Alexei Navalny may die. That is insane. Joe Biden said that if Navalny dies, Russia and Putin would have very big consequences. And I think the Western world is starting to get behind that. That this is just insane. It, 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 I mean, I'm not surprised. But, I mean, they tried to kill him once. Now he's dying in a, in a, in a cell on criminal charges that are completely bogus. It's insane. Do you have any anything to say about that, Con? Yeah, I think um, we saw the Biden administration issue some sanctions, and uh, you know, a couple of days ago, targeted towards uh, Putin in response to the Solar Winds hack uh, of, of U.S. infrastructure last year. And you know, I, I just think we can increasingly see Russia. It just continues to to, to behave badly. Right on the world stage, and we're seeing them sending like tens of thousands of troops the border of Ukraine, and now they're doing to Navalny what they're doing to Navalny. And I think it's good to see you know the president standing up for human rights, and it's good to see the president standing up to Vladimir Putin and his you know uh, his bad actions. But I re- and I and I I really do hope that a lot of European countries. A lot of the world really stands with the United States and President Biden in this. I, I just think it's, I mean, it's a tragic situation. He is, you know, really, I think, Alexei Navalny has been a bigger thorn in Putin's side than any other kind of figure in Russia. And he is doing a lot to expose the, kind of the, the cruelty and of the corruption Putin's too. government. Yeah, the cruelty and corruption of Putin's government. And what Russia has been doing really for for decades now, and you know it is really sad that Navalny is you know making this sacrifice for this bigger cause. But at the end of the day, we need to hold him accountable. He needs to be held accountable. You know, we talk a lot of we just we're talking about account the importance of accountability. And I think for four years during the Trump administration, at least from the United States. I think Russia was largely let off scot-free. There were some minor things, but I think it's good to see that we have a president and we hopefully have a global community who is ready to stand up to Putin's just horrible conduct and his blatant and fragrant human rights abuses and abuses of you know, the sovereignty of other countries like Ukraine. And it's long past time to take this stand. And I'm, I'm glad we're seeing this, even though obviously it's tragic what has happened to Alexei Navalny. Yeah, I uh, agree with everything you said there, Khan. Um, but before we go here, Khan, do you have any last words you want to get out? Anything you're thinking about? So uh, I'll do a quick plug. So for we, I have another podcast, or I'm on another podcast, the Smash Mouth Football Podcast. We're doing a really cool live, not live, but we're doing a very cool like simulated mock draft with the four hosts. We're taking turns picking for the first round. The first week of that draft should have been released last Wednesday or Thursday, and the second round, the second half of the first round will be released next Wednesday or Thursday, and then we're going to be doing a special draft episode, so just kind of keep an eye on those. 
very good episodes. I'll actually be I'll be recording for that podcast either tonight or tomorrow, and the episode will be out wow. next week. You got, so. you got a double head over the podcast. Come I have on. a I have a double head. Poppy, Poppy I got a little points. bit. Yeah, I'm I'm very much in demand. I got a little bit of a break though, so <laughs> got to rest up. You got to recover for the next one. Um, I think my my last word is going to be um, with the coronavirus around the world. It is still very, very serious and dire. We are at the point where we're having as many cases as we did um, that record setting uh, cases in the world last December in the winter in the US here. Um, it is really dire and tragic and the need for global vaccination program and a swift one at that is very consequential. And that's why if you're sitting on J&J vaccines, ship them elsewhere where they're desperately in need. Um, but yeah, so everyone still take as much caution as problem as, as possible get your vaccine um especially if you have ample access like we are starting to get in the u.s schedule appointment research talk to your friends about where they can get it it's a really important effort and then hopefully once we can get enough herd immunity in the u.s and things started getting better we can start really focusing our effort on on nations that have not been as fortunate or privilege to get those vaccines. So that will be it. The Green New Deal is actually going to be reintroduced into the House next week. That's kind of be fun. So look to that. We're Big news for our podcast. podcast. Yeah. So maybe we talk about that next week because I really like want to break down the Green New Deal too, and I want to see if they've made. I feel it like we kind of have to because of our name, we, you know. We are a Green New Podcast. I think next week maybe that's something we do. But anyway, y'all, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, a Green New Podcast. I think it ends at S, and then there's a one. Didn't choose the handle. Um, you can follow us there. We post everything. Listen to us on Spotify. Um, that is our main platform. Um, follow us. Share with your friends. Do all that fun stuff. And uh, get your freaking vaccine if you haven't and you're listening to this. Um, yeah, thank you all. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye.